was on at one point in time. Um, awesome. All right. Uh, I'm really loud, so I could probably yell at you anyway. Uh, just wouldn't be very pleasant for the music after this <laughs> um, if I yell through the sermon. Um, well, good morning. My name is Jared Manning. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Grace Bible Church. And uh, about once a month or so, I get to open up the Word of God and um, and talk about it with you all. And so um, I'm, I'm thankful for that opportunity. Um, you can be praying for uh, Brian and Joshua. Brian is our pastor. If you're new here, um, they'll be coming back today from Abilene. They were there visiting a college. And so um, we can pray for them and pray for Anna Marie, um, our pastor's oldest daughter. She had shoulder surgery this week, and so she's still recovering from that. Had a rough couple of days the first two days, but yesterday was much better. And so we're thankful for, for her recovery and um, seeing her back here soon with us. Um, if you would make your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Um, if you're using the ESV reference Bible, that is page 1,188. If you're not using that Bible, good luck. Um, no, I'm kidding. We, we don't believe in luck. Brandon said, <laughs> um, so may the, may the Lord be with you as you search for 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 3. Uh, Brandon said the NASB is good, the ESV is better, and so that's what I'm going to be in this morning. Um, we'll be in the English Standard Version. Um, we like to, to tease around here about Bible translations. Um, uh, there aren't any bad ones except for the NIV, the message. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. In Bible college, we call the NIV the nearly inspired version. Um, no, but really, we don't hate that. Um, if you're using that, please don't be offended this morning. Um, sorry, I'm in hermeneutics this semester, and so like these Bible translations are all running through my head right now. First um, Thessalonians 3 is where we're going to be. I have been preaching a sermon series, um, as I've preached once a month, called The King is Coming, and how to live the Christian life, and what we should do in light of the fact that our King is coming. We have a special hope. We have something to look forward to. The fact that this world is not the end. It is not as though we, our current state, will just be this way and then we'll die and nothing comes after this. But we have a special hope. We have something to look forward to in the fact that Christ will return. He will reconcile all things to himself. He will make this world new. And we will be finally saved from the presence of sin. And all things will be made right. And so this morning, we've been walking through 1 Thessalonians to talk about that. Paul focuses a lot on the second coming of our Lord in his letters. And so 1 Thessalonians, especially this letter and the one that follows 2 Thessalonians, um, Paul's talking a lot to believers in light of the fact that the Lord is coming. Um, this is how you should live. And so last time I preached out of 1 Thessalonians 2, and we talked about the fact that because Christ is coming, because our King is coming, we are to love others deeply and authentically. 
And Paul talks about at the end of that chapter, his desire, his deep desire to see his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica once again. Because he says in verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. This is how Paul feels about these believers in Thessalonica. He, he longs deeply to be able to see them, to encourage them in the faith. But so far, he says, Satan has hindered him. But in chapter 3, he gives us what he's going to do instead. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 3. Therefore... When we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. We being Paul and Silas. Um, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it's, it has come to pass. And just as you know for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word, humble us beneath the weight of the text. Help us not to simply examine this text like any other. Let us not judge it, but let it judge us. As we sit under its authority, your authority from your word. God, mold us, change us, make us into the likeness of Jesus. It's through his name and for his sake we pray. Amen. So Paul begins here by saying, when, when I could bear it no longer... He so deeply desired to see the Thessalonians, to know what was happening with their faith. He knew they were being persecuted by Jews that were around them. They had afflicted them, pushed them out, told them that what they were believing in was a lie, that Jesus was not the Messiah. Paul knew that all these things were going on with his brothers and sisters there. And he, he was fearful that some of them would fall away, that they would abandon this faith. And he wanted to see them, to encourage them, to, to love them. And so when he could stand it no longer... He says, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. He and Silas and Timothy have been in Athens together. And so he and Silas sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. And so Paul right here is saying, by saying that 
We sent Timothy. We, we were willing to be left behind by Timothy. He's saying Timothy is a very important part to our ministry. I really didn't want to do this, but I can't stand any longer to be away from you. So we're going to send Timothy. We're going to make a sacrifice of our ministry here and send him to you. He's, he's putting an importance upon this man who he is sending to the Thessalonians. He didn't want them to think this was just some messenger for Paul. But rather, he says, he is our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. He says, I'm sending to you my very kin. I'm sending my brother. He is a fellow worker in the gospel. And so these people would have understood how important they are to Paul at this point. But, but look what he says going on. Why did he send him? And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel in Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. We sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith. This morning, the title of our sermon is, The King is Coming, So Remain Faithful. The King is Coming, So Remain Faithful faithful. You'll hear a lot of talk in our politically correct world about faith. We throw that word around about everything. Well, they're people of faith. You'll hear politicians talk about people of faith or people of all faiths. You'll hear celebrities talk about my faith helped me through my drug addiction or alcohol addiction, whatever it was. My faith guided me. But what do they mean by that word? It's lost any kind of meaning in our culture. We've used it as this term that describes a person who is religious. Faith just means you hold to some kind of religion. Maybe it's one that you made up, but you've got faith. It's like the substance that's floating out there that we have. But in the Bible... And in Christianity, when we use the word faith, we are talking about something very specific. A very specific faith. The only faith that saves. The only faith that brings us into a right relationship with God. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, if we're going to begin this talk on remaining faithful, we must know what the content of our faith is. What does it mean that we are a people of the faith? The content of our faith is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is talking about. When Paul refers to the faith of these people, he is speaking of the faith, as Jude writes later, that was once for all delivered to the saints. It is a specific message, a specific gospel. It is a certain kind of faith. And Paul writes about this faith in 1 Corinthians 15. Here he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers in time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, speaking of himself, he appeared also to me. This is the content of our faith. You say, well, that's, that's pretty simple. He was buried, he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. He died for our sins. He's buried, he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared. Don't miss this, that Paul includes this part in what was of first importance. The fact that he appeared to Cephas or Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. What's Paul saying? He's really alive. He really raised from the dead. That's an important part of the gospel. That's an important part of our faith. The fact that Jesus is alive. Unlike every other religion in the world, the one who established our religion is not laying in a tomb in the Middle East somewhere. But he rose. And the fact that he rose means that we too will rise if we are in him. And it also means that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. This is the content of our faith. That Jesus Christ died for our sins. That he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day. People don't mind this. Some people might have a problem with this. Most people won't mind that you believe this. What they will mind is when you say... This is the faith, the only faith that will make you right with God. There is no other way. What they mind is the exclusivity of this gospel. That is what they hate. That is what they despise. We have coexist bumper stickers all over the place. For the most part, people don't hate religion except those few wackos like Bill Maher who hate religion, period, right? Most people don't hate religion. They're like, that's fine. If you believe that, I believe this. Oprah's all about including everybody, right? Um, coexisting together. What they don't like is the fact that Jesus is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. So the content of our faith is important because it is the only faith that saves. So what was Timothy there to do? Timothy was there to establish them in this faith. The word establish in the dictionary has a few different definitions. One is to install or settle in a position. Another is to show to be valid or true or to prove. And one is to bring about permanently. Timothy was there to do all of these things. He was there to settle these believers into the position that what they believed was true. It was, in fact, the gospel. It was, in fact, the only way they would be made right with God. It was, in fact, Jesus is the Messiah. He was there to establish them in this faith. Once for all, delivered to the saints. He wanted to settle them into this position. He wanted them to know that this wasn't something that they had made up. That the apostles were spreading this. Something that was made up. And he wanted to bring about permanence. He wanted them to be assured of their salvation.
Timothy was also there, not, not just to establish them in that. He was there to exhort them in their faith. The Bible uses this word quite often. Um, we don't use it so much in our language or in our everyday speak. But exhort means to urge, to advise, to caution earnestly, and admonish urgently. Timothy is there on an urgent mission. He knows the Thessalonians are being tempted to stray from the faith. They're being persecuted by Jews who are saying what you believe is a lie. And Paul is concerned that they may start to abandon the faith. That some may start to walk away. That they may be convinced by these people. So Timothy has an urgent message to them. Keep the faith. Fight the fight. He's there to caution them. To think about what they believe. To think on this content of their faith. Paul writes in his letter to Timothy, um, in 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Over and over again, in New Testament letters, we hear about exhortation and the importance of it in the worship of the church, in everyday conversation, Paul tells Timothy as a pastor, devote yourself to public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. That's what we gather here on Sunday mornings to do. We are here to remind one another of the content of our faith. To establish one another in the faith. To encourage one another in the faith. And to exhort one another to keep the faith. We have brothers and sisters around the world being persecuted for this faith. And we too will be persecuted here for this faith. And we gather together to exhort one another. And if we do not gather together, friends, we will fall away. The writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another... Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So let's, let's talk about that for a second. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now here at Grace Bible Church, we don't believe that a saved person can lose their salvation. Many churches in our city and in our area and in our nation, in our world would agree with us that the Bible teaches that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, that you are saved. So what's the writer of Hebrews saying? Take care, brothers. He's recognizing that they're believers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. None of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So here's the clause. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If you hold the content of your faith to the end, then it is confirmation that you are a believer. Until then... I can't know for sure. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's like, I have no way of knowing your heart. And if you've actually trusted Christ, unless you hold it till the end. 
And so that's why he's saying, give attention to exhortation. Exhort one another every day. Don't be deceived by sin. Don't let sin rule in you. Don't let it take root in your life. For we've come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. See, there's a mistake in the once saved, always saved mantra. It's that people believe they can say a prayer one time, sometime in their childhood or even in their adult life, and live however they want after that, and they're a believer. And they're eternally secure in that because they said that prayer. Well, according to Hebrews, no. Only if you hold the original confidence firm to the end. Only if you hold to Christ to the end. And that's what Paul is concerned about for these believers. He wants to know, are they holding to the faith? He sends Timothy, find out for me. Are they holding to the faith? Are they falling away? Paul, Timothy, and the writer of Hebrews are committed to exhorting believers. And they call us to exhort one another. Because our faith has a cost. And they know that some will think that the cost is too great. And so as we read on, we see what the cost is. Verse 3 through 5. That no one be moved by these afflictions. I'm going to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted and our labor would be in vain. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. You know that we are destined for this. In other words, Paul says, I taught you that you were destined for this. As you're in your affliction, you remember? I taught you you were destined for this. I told you this was coming. And maybe some of you didn't believe me. You were like, no, couldn't happen here. Many American Christians today, we read in the Bible. It is granted to you to suffer for the Lord's sake. And we say, no, not here. We're in America, land of religious freedom. For now. For now. Couldn't happen here. But Paul says, you know, I told you this was coming. We were destined for this. We were destined for this. And they're undergoing great scrutiny, being told that they're missing it. Jesus was not the Messiah. Those who would not reject the faith were persecuted and even killed for their faith this time. They were destined for affliction. Paul reminds the readers of his letters that they knew the cost of following Jesus. Philippians 1.29, he writes, For it was granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Matthew 16.24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those words, take up his cross, in that context, in that day, they would have understood, take up your cross means come die with me. And it wasn't just a spiritual thing. We like to think in America, in American Christianity, we like to think, oh, he's talking about die to yourself spiritually. 
No, actually right here he was saying, no, you're, you're going to die. Come on, follow me. That doesn't get too many followers here. Didn't get too many followers then. Early on in Jesus' ministry, we see crowds of thousands following him. They love watching the miracles and seeing the signs and wonders that he brought. But by the end of his ministry, we get to Acts chapter 2, there are like 120 people in the upper room. It went from thousands to 120. It's a great church growth strategy to preach the true gospel. I love Jesus walking down the road. Just every now and then, he'll stop. You're like, hey, if you don't hate your whole family, can't follow me. If you guys drop back. <laughs> All right. See ya. And just turn around. Hey, by the way, everybody's going to hate you. Follow me. Here, take up your cross. You're going to die. Come follow me. Matthew 24, 9. More encouragement. From Jesus himself. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Not only will the people around you hate you, not just your family, not just your sphere of influence, you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Jesus, that's not a really good way. If you're going to like take over the world, I don't want all the nations to hate people for your sake. But that's the call of this gospel. To follow Jesus will cost you everything. To follow Jesus will cost you everything. Do we believe that? Do we know that? Because so often when it costs us something, we begin to grumble and complain and moan and whine. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness. But, but back in Egypt, we had leeks and garlic, which, come on, guys. Leeks and garlic, that's what you're sad about? Um, I'm like, we have ribeyes and tea. Um, so they're complaining because back there we had leeks and garlic and we had all these things to eat and you've brought us out here. Oh yeah, we're not in slavery anymore, but we don't have anything to eat but this nasty manna that you've given us. We act just like them. We say this will cost us everything. We believe it will cost us nothing, but we'll get a lot from Jesus. We want him for his stuff. But when he doesn't give us stuff, we're not so interested anymore. Paul doesn't spread this false gospel, this, this false idea that come to Jesus, it'll make your life better. And we shouldn't either. As we're preaching the gospel to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family, don't tell them come to Jesus and he'll make it all right. That's a lie. Many people come to Jesus and they end up with cancer. Some people come to Jesus and they lose their child. Some people come to Jesus and they lose their job and everything that they own. That doesn't mean their faith isn't valid. That they haven't truly trusted in Christ. The prosperity gospel is a lie. 
And those people who believe in that gospel are the very ones when persecution comes, they will fall away. They will not hold to their confidence till the end. Because they've been told a lie. And they've believed a lie. Jesus will make everything better. And the minute things get bad, well, I guess this Jesus thing really isn't true. See, Paul was so intent on telling these people when he had shared the gospel with them, when he had brought the gospel to them, guess what? This is not going to be an easy road. You want to come to Jesus? Have life eternal. It's going to be glorious. But not right now. Your best life isn't right now. It's coming. It's not right now. In fact, it's going to be probably one the worst life now. Jonathan Edwards said that... Um, well, what did he say? I just blanked. Um, Jonathan Edwards said, for, for the unbeliever, this is the best heaven they will ever know. For the believer in Christ, this is the worst hell we will ever experience. This is the worst for us right now. We have a better life coming, the best life coming. Paul knew it, Timothy knew it, and the Thessalonians, they're seeing that it was true. It costs everything. And he's scared that they're going to be tempted. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. What's he talking about? The tempter tempting you. Well, I think he's referring to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Jesus is out there and Satan's telling him, you don't have to go through with this. I will give you this. Look at all this that I own. You don't have to go through with your father's plan. Come with me. I'll give you all of this. And Satan whispers that into every ear of every believer for all of time. You just got a diagnosis of cancer? I'll let you free. You don't have to keep following this Jesus. Maybe if you weren't a follower of Jesus, maybe you would have kept your job. See, Satan whispers in our ear, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Or he makes you ask the question, is it worth it? Friends, it's worth it. Amen. It is worth it. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan to abandon the plan of God. We are tempted to abandon the gospel. And every time we give in to our temptations, our hearts for a moment abandon the gospel. You know why you sin? Because you don't believe the gospel. It's why we all sin, because we don't believe the gospel. We don't believe we've been set free from the power of sin. And little by little, as we continue to abandon the gospel one at a time, we fall away. And as every time we let the tempter continue to come into our minds, maybe eventually you'll just abandon the whole thing altogether. And that's what Paul's concern is for his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, that's what his concern is for these brothers and sisters. 
that they would just abandon the gospel altogether. Then in verse 6 through 10, he shows us the consequence of our faith. Now often when we hear the word consequence, we think of something negative. But consequence can also have a positive connotation, all right? And so that's where we're going this morning. The consequence of our faith, the result of our faith, verses 6 through 10. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live. If you're standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul is encouraged by Timothy's report. They had love for their brothers and sisters. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's Paul's first proof and first assurance that these brothers and sisters are holding fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's that they have love for one another. Now notice, he doesn't just say love for all people. But he says, now that Timothy has come, he's brought the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Paul gets very specific. He recognizes that those believers still love him. They still love him because all the people around them right now are telling them, Paul's a liar. What he told you is wrong. It's untrue. Don't believe him. But Timothy comes back and says, they love you and they can't wait to see you. They desire to see you just as much as you desire to see them. So Paul is encouraged that these brothers and sisters are still in the faith. Why? Not because they just love people, but they love other believers. They love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What does your relationship look like with your brothers and sisters in Christ? True faith in Jesus leads to love for the people of God. And it's very hard for me to listen to someone who claims to be a believer and says to me, but I don't go to church. I don't really need that. Those people are all hypocrites. It's just me and Jesus and my Bible. Well, according to the scriptures, it's not just you, Jesus, and your Bible. Jesus didn't just save you for a personal relationship with himself. He saved you into a community of people. You belong to a holy priesthood. And it is expected if you love Jesus, you would love his people. And you would desire to be with his people. You would desire to worship with his people. You would be a part of exhorting his people. True faith is confirmed by love for one another. And that is one of the results of our faith. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we love our brothers and sisters. Now there may be some of them harder to love. Amen. I am chief among them. Um, There may be some of them harder to love. 
but we still love them because we are in Christ. Not only that, consequence of our faith is the encouragement and comfort to others. We bring comfort and encouragement to others. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, verse 7, we have been comforted about you through your faith. As you've been afflicted, as we've been afflicted, as we've been in distress and persecution, as you have endured the same thing, seeing the fact that you are enduring in the faith comforts us. It comforts us. I don't know about you, but I am so encouraged and comforted. When I see videos of our brothers and sisters in Iraq being lined up on a beach, and they're calling them people of the cross as though that's a derogatory term. And one by one, they behead our brothers and sisters. There's part of me that rages against that. But then when I think about it from our brothers and sisters' perspective, I am comforted and encouraged to know that they are steadfast in the faith. They will not be moved. They will not recant for threat of their life, but they will stand. They will remain faithful. I am comforted by brothers and sisters like David and Charlene who go through cancer and they go through treatment, but they still see that Christ is better. Jesus is better. And we have hope. And we will get through this. And like Job, they would say, even if he slay me still, I will trust in him. Though he slay me still, I trust in him. Can you say that this morning? Do we believe that? It is an encouragement and a comfort to me to see brothers and sisters in distress in times of persecution keep the faith and continue to fight the fight and to tell everyone how good Jesus is. Yeah. And there will come a day when you and I will have to stand and remain faithful. It may be in the face of disease or sickness. It may be in the face of persecution. It may be in the face of death. Will we remain faithful to the encouragement and comfort of other believers? They will see our faith and they too will stand fast. Lastly, it brings joy. It brings joy. Verse 9, verse 10. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. It brings joy. Now too often in our minds, in our culture, we make joy and happiness the same thing. They're not. Your joy does not mean you are happy. David had joy even though he lamented all through the Psalms. And you'll see his, his words turn. In, in one chapter, in one Psalm, you'll see, you'll see him go from, Where are you? 
to I trust in you. You are sovereign. You are holding me in your hand. And there are days, many of them, where I feel those emotions. And you probably feel those emotions. But you know what? Even in sadness and in happiness, joy remains. Joy is eternal. It's the lasting and abiding hope that we have that this is not the end. Our circumstances are not the end. They don't define us. They don't make us who we are. But the blood of Jesus Christ has marked us. We are sealed and we will be delivered. And that brings great joy. And then lastly, we see the consummation of our faith. The consummation of our faith in verse 11 through 13. If we remain faithful, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. It's interesting that Paul sent Timothy to establish them in the faith. By the end of the chapter, Paul's prayer is that God would establish their hearts blameless in holiness for himself at his coming. See, Paul recognizes that Timothy can help establish you in the faith. He can help you prove that this faith is real. He can teach you the doctrines that I've already taught you. He can confirm that you are exhibiting Christian traits. But Paul sees that only God can make you blameless before him. It is only God who can wash away your sin. It is only the blood of Jesus Christ that makes you holy before a righteous God. And so Paul ends with this prayer. That the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. What's Paul praying for? A faith that endures to the end. Not that it would just be Timothy establishing you now, but that God would establish you at the coming of Jesus. That your hearts would be blameless in holiness before him at the coming of Jesus. The king is coming. Remain faithful. Every day in the news, there's a headline of another pastor, another church, another ministry abandoning the faith once for all delivered to the saints because that's easier to do than say we stand on truth and gay marriage is not a thing. It's easier to try to weasel around it in our Bible and try to re-explain scriptures in a way that would say, no, 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 we don't believe that. That's not Christianity. No, that is truth. And we are called to remain faithful. Don't fall away. Pray for one another. Exhort one another urgently because the time is coming where you will be asked... Is this really 
what you believe? Is this really where you stand? Brothers, sisters, let us remain faithful. Our king is coming. We hope in that. We glory in that. This is the worst it's ever going to be. We wait for a better day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone to our own will and our own power and our own strength to remain faithful. But God, you have given us your Holy Spirit. You have set him in our hearts, in our minds. You guide us. You comfort us. You convict us. But Father, by your power, we pray that we would remain faithful. That we would hold fast to the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints, that you died, that you rose, and you are coming again. That is our hope. It's in Jesus, and in his name we pray.